prepare to become a bride. Uh, we receive help or a gift from him through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Feast of Trumpets is the time that he comes back from a long journey and claims his wife, takes her to his father, and they're then married at the Day of Atonement, and Satan is cast out, who is the old boyfriend that is no longer able to influence, so they become married. And then we know that we are to reign for a thousand years with Christ. So what happens there, and I want to follow this up because it's important to our development and our understanding and our preparation, is that what a bride does when she prepares herself, and we are in the preparation stage, and the Bible uses the term preparing the bride, or the bride has made herself ready or prepared herself, uh, what are you preparing for? The wedding? Well, in part, but only in small part. What you're preparing for is to get past the bridal preparations and the wedding and become a wife. So we switch from preparing the bride at that point to our role as the wife of Christ himself. And I think that it is very important that we understand that because our own marriages, and I think I pointed this out at one point during one of those feast sermons, uh, is a type of the marriage directly. And Paul addresses that specifically in Ephesians 5 where he says, I, this is a mystery, but I speak uh, concerning Christ and the church. That our relationship in a marriage between husband and wife should reflect that relationship between Christ and the church. So we're living out a symbolism. We're living out a type here on this earth. To us, it's a physical relationship of marriage, and it is a physical relationship, uh, and it ends in physical death. But it is a type of something that is to last forever. So we don't want to take marriage for granted. We don't want to take our role as a husband or a wife for granted, because what we are is in a practice session to be the very wife of Christ and to respond to him as a husband as we should. Now the analogy breaks down a little bit in terms of us being male and female physically on the earth. Uh, the 144,000 will be comprised of those who were physically male and female during their existence on this earth. But there is a change that comes where we all are the bride. So uh, you guys can't just relax because we're talking to women here about their role as a wife because we as men will take on that role as well. We are all to become the wife of Christ. So what applies here is important to male and female. Of course, God breaks it down too. And he uses in Ephesians 5 again the relationship of the husband and wife. The husband is in the position of Christ as the husband. It's play acting, if you will, and none of us by any means are perfect actors. But we're here to rehearse and put on a lifelong or marriage-long play, if you will, of what it would be like to actually be Christ, and for the women, what it would like to be, be like to be the wife of Christ. 
So he set the man to play the role of Christ himself, uh, which takes on great responsibility and is a scary position to be in. And he puts the woman, or the wife, physically, in the position of responding to her physical husband in the same way that the church should respond to Christ. So we are playing a role, if you will, and if anybody is to watch and applaud that or to be happy with the performances put on, uh, we need to do our job properly. So we have to start out with the right attitude, and I think I will turn to Ephesians 5 for just a few moments here uh, and review this because this is a very pivotal chapter in the terms of attitude of husband and wife one to the other. If you don't have the right attitude, then you're not going to perform properly. Uh, you might try to go by the numbers and, and uh, say, I will comply with this and I will comply with that. But if the attitude isn't right then it, and it's not done in the proper way, then it doesn't mean much. Just like a child says, all right, I will obey. But you can tell their attitude is they do not want to. They're doing it because they absolutely have to. The neck is stiff, the body language is very rigid, and there is rebellion in the attitude, even though there might be physical compliance. And sometimes we are that way. Uh, we know God's way, but we really want our way, and we want to conduct our marriages from a selfish standpoint. Husband or wife can become very selfish in their approach to the relationship, and God addresses the issue of attitude here. It begins in verse 21, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So we are to approach the marriage relationship, both husband and wife, submitting yourselves one to another, uh, with the fear of God in mind. This is an awesome responsibility, marriage. And it is to be taken in that attitude and approach with the fear of God in mind. Now, it's hard to maintain that in a marriage because we are, male or female, living with an imperfect person who in that sense really is an actor until these things become a part of their character a part of their, well, maybe not nature, as long as we're human beings, but until we change our attitudes and get them in line with what they should be to represent Christ and the church. But we look upon each other as human, and we have our own selfish approach so often as husband or wife, and we do not look upon our marriages in terms of the fear of God. Now, we could go into a study right here on the fear of God and how we should tremble before God and be in great awe of God. So what Paul is really saying here is you need to be in awe of the opportunity and the responsibility that is given in marriage. Now, why do we want to get married as human beings? Well, we're lonely or we're frustrated or we have drives and desires and urges that we feel need to be taken care of, and those are not 
wrong urges and desires and needs. We all have needs as human beings that God created marriage to take care of in the relationship between a husband and a wife. All kinds of needs of security, of uh, love, of compassion, of sharing. There are so many, many things that we as human beings need, and marriage is designed to take care of that. And when we're unmarried, we think of the needs and desires and wants and things that we desire to have and to share with someone else. But I fear even as single people looking forward to marriage, we're thinking of it in a selfish way. I want to get married to take care of this, 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 and this, whatever those things you think about might be. And in that sense, we're not prepared for marriage. We are thinking selfishly and not with the love of God to give and share uh, life with another, but we want our needs fulfilled, whatever they may be. And that is not the kind of love that God is looking for. He's looking for the outgoing concern, the desire to please, to help uh, the other, that is a godly relationship. And that is the primary reason that most marriages have problems, and so many, many end up in divorce, is that while we like the idea of marriage, we do not approach it from the right standpoint, and we live selfishly within it, and as a result, it doesn't work. Uh, Christianity can be the very same way. We can approach Christianity, but we want to give God lip service and yet fulfill our own selfish desires and needs and do things the way we want and overcome those things that are easy but keep to ourselves certain things that we're selfish about. And that is a problem. That is why. And one of the primary reasons why God instituted marriage on the face of the earth to begin with is that we might begin to react with godly love toward the one that we have chosen to live with for the rest of our physical lives. And that is a trial, a difficulty, and a very hard relationship to maintain and to develop in the way that it should go. But perhaps if we look at this from the standpoint not of just our physical marriages, but of a relationship with Christ as his wife, and how we deal with him, how we would respond to him, uh, and apply that to our lives, perhaps our marriages would be a great deal happier and more fulfilling than they are when we tend as human beings to operate from a self-centered, selfish, proud uh, approach and wanting our own way rather than being there to submit to our husband or our wife in the way that we should. So he addresses that here and gives us some very, very positive instruction that you should submit yourselves as you would to the eternal. Now, the eternal doesn't sweat and stink. He doesn't uh, say things he shouldn't say. Uh, he is not hurtful. He is not selfish. And the problem is we are, husband or wife. We want what we want. And it is very difficult for us to be giving and loving and compassionate and sharing 
at all times with our mate. Husbands tend to want to domineer and dominate and, and make her into something that just does his way and his will, and wives want their way, and they manipulate uh, husbands sometimes uh, unfairly to get their way, and as a result, their problems. And we, I think probably anyone who is married or been married understands what I'm talking about here. We say, well, yeah, if you were like the Lord, I'd submit. <laughs> but since we all fall short, they don't. Well, the proof of the pudding there is in the fruits. How well do we submit to the Lord, if you want to put it that way? We have our selfishness. We have our ways of doing things and things we don't want to give up uh, that would cause us to live more like a wife of Christ should live. So we can't use that as a lame excuse. You're not like the Lord because we don't respond to him the way we ought to either. And he put us down here to learn to respond to each other humanly in the way that we ought to learn to respond to him. So it's a trial process that we're in to learn to react to each other the way we ought to react to him. Let's not get the cart before the horse here. Marriage is what you use to learn how to submit to him because we as human beings do not want to submit to God. We just do not. The human mind is carnality and it is enmity to God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as to the eternal. There's much in the Bible about how we should react to God, and he says you should react to your husband even as you would react to God. No, he is not perfect, but you have to maintain the attitude toward him that you have toward Emmanuel the King. That's what you're practicing to be, is the wife of Emmanuel the King. Now, do we get it right? Sometimes, not often enough, or way too little. But we need to understand what it is that we're doing day by day when we react to one another, that we're practicing to be a wife of Christ himself. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. How does the church react to Christ? We are here as a church to respond to him, to submit to him, to do everything he wants, to please him in every way. Without faith, we cannot please him, it says. But we are here to practice that. And your mate is the one you are linked up with to do that practice. Now, where we are as human beings in that process varies. Uh, you know, we look around pretty carefully sometimes, sometimes we don't, but sometimes we look around pretty carefully about who we'd want to be linked up with and married to and live with for the rest of our lives. Uh, that requires a certain amount of, of uh, perception and getting acquainted and knowing someone and seeing them under all kinds of different circumstances to see if that's someone you would want to live with. So many times they'll say, well, I like, like the way they look, I'll change the way they act. Good luck. You can work on that one for a lifetime and not, not make much process, progress. But we're here to make progress. We're here 
So the God and Christ can look down and say, boy, I like the way those two are acting. I think I'd like them to be uh, a part of my bride and ultimately my wife because the way they interact with each other. So he says here that a wife is to react to her husband the way she would to Christ. I know that's a tall order, girls, uh, because we are far from perfect. But that's what he says you should do. And he is the savior of the body. So you're to look to your husband as the one to save you from many of the pitfalls and difficulties of life, to protect you, to be secure in his heart and in his arms. And he is not to let you down in those things. Now that's not spiritual salvation by any means, but it is a physical type. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Not just in what they choose, but in everything. But they are there to whatever he needs, whatever he desires, to try to provide that in whatever way possible. That is, anything that is legal. Uh, it, you know, he cannot put anything upon you that is contrary to God's word, to God's law. Uh, he is not the boss in that sense. God is. So anything that is legal and lawful that God would have you to do, is what your husband should require of you and not anything that is unlawful or unpleasing to God. So if he tries to do that to you, you refuse. That you are to do it in everything that is godly. And then the instruction to the husbands is that they love their wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We are here not to lord it over them, not to use them as a servant or a slave, but to love them and give ourselves to them and for them and for their benefit and their help. A lot of times husbands are like, aren't equipped to do that. They don't have the skills that are necessary to present themselves to their wives in that way. And they say, well, I'm the boss, so you do what I say. Well, so many times the things that he says are things that are selfish, that are for him. And he's not willing to give in to his wife, he is not willing to consider her needs, her wants, her desires, her feelings, but he's going to have it his way, right away. And that is not a correct approach. That is not the way Christ deals with us. He gives us time and opportunity. He gives us uh, space. Uh, he gives us much free will and much opportunity, as we'll see a little later on. Uh, far more than many men are willing to give their wives because they figure I'm in charge and that means something different to them than, that, than what Christ or Paul are trying to say here. You're not an overlord. You're not to be overbearing. Now, many, of, many men are overbearing and they let their macho shine through and yet you didn't, any of you, male or female, appreciate it when the church and the ministry got overbearing and tried to tell you every little thing to do and how you would do it. You resented that. Well, that church was not supposed to be in that role. They were to be helpers of your joy. They were there to guide, to lead, to direct, to instruct wherever possible, to help you be what you should be as a Christian. But too often, we meddled and got too involved in people's lives to the point we're telling them every little thing to do, and that's not what Christ does with us. And if we resented it as church members to the ministry, 
then why should it surprise us if our wives resent it when we become that way with them? Okay, verse 26, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So Christ helps set his, side, his wife aside as something special, sanctified. That's what that means, is set aside for a special and holy use so that she might be without spot and wrinkles, it says a little later on. Uh, be cleansed by the word of God. So the church is here then, in that sense, uh, as our mother, but also in the position of, well, it is of Christ to the church. He is the one that oversees the church. The church is here in the position of a wife or mother in that sense. So the church needs to be careful what it does. Uh, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. He wants us to be glorified. So many men approach marriage with the idea of uh, you will do what I say and you will follow everything I want done. And so he, he then develops a martyred myrtle or someone who is cowed and insecure in her personality because her husband dominates and domineers. Answers her, somebody asks her a question and he'll answer it instead of letting her do it. That is overbearing. It is not right. Uh, it is wrong. Uh, if somebody asks your wife a question, you don't turn around and answer it for her. She has a mouth. She has a brain. Uh, let her use it. Back off. You know, but some men do that because they figure only they can give a proper answer. His wife, you know, after all, she's not very bright. Uh, that is the feeling that is put out when men do that to their wives. Utterly wrong. We should be a glorious bride, one who can speak up for herself, one who is capable, one who can manage the affairs of her husband, the king, in a proper and right way. We need to be very capable. We need to be very knowledgeable. We need to know his way of life. We need to know everything he wants done and how he wants it done and be able to perform for him in that way. And if you are cowed and beat down, uh, then you can't perform properly. So husbands need to learn not to just be in charge, but have developed the right tools to know how to encourage, to strengthen, to inspire, to help a woman be all she can be. And she is there then to help him as well. So he wants a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And then he emphasizes it. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. So put your wife there and love her the way you do your own flesh. And you take care of it. You don't want it to get too hot, too cold, too hungry. Uh, you, you want to be well taken care of. And you want to be sure your wife is well taken care of. And her wants, her needs, her desires, her feelings are met. Now, that is a tall order. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the eternal does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are to marry him and become one with him, this, this is saying. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, for this reason, 
shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. The in-laws are not supposed to interfere in the marriage. Did anybody hear that? The in-laws are not supposed to interfere in the marriage. A man is to leave his father and mother, and a woman is to leave her father and mother, and cleave to each other in a marriage. It is to be a separate entity. It is to be governed by that new husband and that new wife. They are to cause that marriage to represent Christ in the church. It is their practice session. It is their acting session, if you will. And therefore, there should not be interference from either side of the family. They should stand on their own and stand up to this analogy on their own. They should brook no interference from father and mother. Now, if they need advice and counsel and wisdom from parents on either side, then they should be able to seek that and ask for help. And I suppose there are times when a parent uh, looks at his child and, and says, well, you know, you need to straighten this up, and maybe from a spiritual standpoint that can happen. But we need to be very, very careful that we are not interfering and trying to run their lives for them. They're adult now. Treat them like adults. Let them live their own lives. Let them make their own way. They will either succeed or fail based on what they do. And if in-laws interfere, then it causes nothing but trouble. And God said that from the very beginning, that they are to have a separate household. They are to take care of themselves and be joined as one. Now, yes, you're still blood relatives with your family, and you can still have family interaction, but it should not interfere with the marriage. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, there is nobody that is going to interfere in the marriage between Christ and his new bride become then his wife. He will not allow interference. That's why Satan is bound at the time of the wedding, at the Day of Atonement, so that he cannot interfere anymore with the relationship between Christ and the church. And he does interfere, doesn't he? He accuses us before the throne of God every day. And that will be stopped. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she highly respect her husband. Reverence may be a little strong word there. I didn't check to see what uh, the actual Greek says. But she is to treat him the way she would treat Christ. So uh, the greatest of respect certainly is meant here. We call no man reverent. Don't call him reverend husband. But the, the attitude of respect should be there toward him as it is to God. And how far do we fall short of that, I wonder sometimes. Now Christ is considering you and me to be in this position of not only bride, but of wife. I want to go back to the Proverbs for a few moments. Let's look at a few of these and see what kind of wife he, well, First of all, doesn't want. I think this is important to understand and comprehend. We'll get to what he does want a little more later. We've already seen some of it in Ephesians 5. But let's go to uh, Proverbs 19. 
and pick it up in verse 13 here. A foolish son is the calamity of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. Uh, he does not want a contentious wife. He does not want a wife who is negative and nagging at him at every turn about this, that, and the other thing. It becomes like water dripping on your head or dripping on the floor or a kitchen sink dripping uh, is what he's saying here. It becomes annoying after a while. Proverbs 19, verse 13. Christ does not want to live forever with people that are nagging at him, that are whining and complaining and totally discontented and frustrating to deal with. He just doesn't want to live with that. So he puts these analogies in here. Uh, Solomon wrote a lot of the Proverbs. I don't know whether he wrote these particular ones enough, but he had enough wives he ought to know what he was talking about. Uh, Proverbs 21, verse 9. It is better to dwell in the corner of the attic than with a brawling woman in a very large house. You're better off sitting alone in the corner of an attic than in a big house with a brawling woman. Christ does not want that. Now, we can go to Galatians 5 and read the works of the flesh if you want to again. And, uh, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and happiness. Those are the things that Christ wants in his wife, is uh, peaceable, loving in terms of relationship. He does not want the selfishness and the I want, I want, I want that we tend to have as human beings. Um, let's see. This this is mentioned several times, same thing over and over, Matthew. I mean, Proverbs 25, verse 24. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman at a white house. says the same thing that we just read. It's repeated. It makes you wonder if when some of these Proverbs are being written, somebody was in his ear saying things that he frustrating him. But God chose to put them in the Bible, didn't he? Proverbs 21, verse 19. Now, let's not chuckle at our wives, men, because we're in a position, too, of becoming the wife of Christ. He doesn't want to hear us whining and complaining, and more than we want to hear a nagging, complaining, whining, unhappy wife. Proverbs 21, verse 19. Did I read that one? I lose my place here talking. Uh, it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. It's better to live off alone under a cactus plant somewhere than with a brawling and angry woman. Proverbs 27, verse 50. A continual dropping in a very rainy day in a contentious woman or alike. Uh, some cultures have even used dripping water on someone's forehead hour after hour as a form of torture. It just drives people insane. And I think whoever wrote this was having those feelings. That's, I think there's, let's see, Proverbs 11.22. Let's go back there just a moment. As a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. Picture that. 
have a nice gold jewel and a pig's nose. So is a fair woman, beautiful woman, without <clears throat> discretion. So if we are not discreet, if we are not have the right kind of attitude and approach to life, it's just like putting jewels on a pig. Uh, and, and he doesn't want that in us as potential wives or wife, man or woman. Ecclesiastes is, is another one we can go to here quickly. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. It doesn't matter how pretty you are. I think that's what that's saying. It doesn't matter how pretty you are. If you don't act right on the inside and your attitude and your approach and your mouth isn't right, then the beauty doesn't mean a thing. You might as well dress up a pig because beauty is from the inside, not the outside. Our society puts so much on physical beauty. And, you know, that, is, that isn't the right approach. Uh, we, we look at girls. Oh, you look so lovely. You're so pretty. You look gorgeous. You look nice. You're beautiful. Well, fine. It's okay to be pretty physically, but it isn't what's important. If a pig's got a good attitude, dress it up and live with it. You'll be better off than a beautiful woman that acts like a pig. Just the way it is. Sorry. You know, instead of going up to a girl and saying, oh, you look gorgeous today, why not say, how's your sewing going? Or how's your cooking looking? You know, are you learning how to be a wife? Or are you just trying to be pretty? Now, our society puts nearly, nearly all the emphasis on physical looks. And that's why we dress up the way we do and put on makeup the way we do and change our hair the way we do and do all the things that our society does, which is just the opposite of what Christ is looking for. Remember that Christ himself came to this earth as a man that nobody would look to for physical looks. He did not want that to get started. So he came as... A homely man, frankly, on purpose. And a homely girl that has a good attitude is a lot easier to live with than a pretty one that has a bad attitude. God, if Christ is going to live with us, he wants somebody that he can live in peace with. Lovable, kind and meek, and that kind of thing. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 26. And I find more bitter than death. Here, here, this is quite a comparison. More bitter than the idea of dying. How many of us want to die? Not too many of us. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands is bands. Whoso pleases God shall escape her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. He said, I'd, rather, I'd really rather die than live with a woman like that. Now, do we have a challenge as human beings? And I'm not talking about here about just women again. This is all of us who are candidates to become a wife of Christ, man and woman. That's where the analogy breaks down. How many of us are complainers and gripers and whiners and murmurers? You know, don't we all do it? Well, he's looking down saying, I want to marry that one, I want to marry that one, I'm going to, boy, that one sure, oh, and all I hear is complaining, all I hear is murmuring, all I hear is I want, I want, I want, I want, 
uh, give me this, give me that, give me something else, you know? Are we praying, Thy kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are we praying that all God's children have peace and safety and happiness and love and that Christ be here ruling? Or do we want this and we want that and our prayers are so selfish? Um, well, how do we react to each other in marriage? You know, there are a lot of people who are pretty, pretty selfish. I want this and I want that and I'll get even and if you spend on this, I'll spend on that. And, you know, if you do this, I'll do that. And, and we, we have all these threats and these things going back and forth between us as to who's going to get what and who's going to do the best. People argue about money. Uh, sometimes people mismanage it. I understand all that. That's a different matter. But uh, the point is here, attitude means a lot. And we need the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, and not the whining, complaining, murmuring, and griping. Isn't that the first thing that Israel did when they came out of Mitzrayim? Was start murmuring and complaining. Nagging at God, in other words. Well, when are you going to give us water? When are you going to give us food? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? How about eternity? Listening to that. How about it? You know, we used to gripe and complain a lot when the church broke up about the ministry and all the wrongs that were done and this and that. And I've said many times, it's time to forget all that and move on. It's past. It was wrong. Forget about it because whining and complaining and griping among ourselves and murmuring about it uh, isn't going to change it. It's something that's done. All right? What should we be doing then? Instead of doing it the way the church did it, Instead of reacting with all of our murmuring and complaining and griping, we need to move forward in love and joy and peace and the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is not living in the past and whining and complaining. we got to get past that and move forward. All right, let's go on. Well, I want to conclude one here about what he's not looking for. Let's go back to 1 Samuel for a moment. Uh, here I want chapter 15. Now you'll recall that there was a time when Samuel complained to God and said, well, these people are so upset against me and I'm having difficulty with them. And, and God said, no, wait a minute, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So when we do all our griping and our complaining down here about uh, the ministry, about each other, uh, you know, we're all here as potential brides and wives-to-be of God, and if those attitudes are going on, then we're not really rejecting the minister. We're not rejecting uh, each other. We are truly rejecting God. We're rejecting his way which is love, joy, and peace, and all those other fruit of the Spirit. Uh, instead, we're allowing ourselves to be selfish and whining and complaining, and everybody's not treating me the way they ought to be treating me. In other words, self-centered and spoiled, and egotistical and proud. And we have to get rid of that and become compliant and produce the fruit of the Spirit. So Samuel had that, and then here in chapter 15, I'm not there yet, here we go, uh, 
people had disobeyed and they took things that they shouldn't take, the spoil of the sheep, the oxen, and so on, in verse 21. And Samuel said, Has the Eternal as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as is in obeying the voice of the Eternal? Better, uh, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You have that sacrificial system, and, you know, we can go by road, try to obey the Sabbath, we can try to do this, we can try to do that, and go through it and sacrifice our time, our lives, in one way. But if it's not with the right attitude of, in the spirit of compliance and obedience, then the physical compliance doesn't mean much if the spirit isn't there along with it. As I said at the beginning, if it's a grudging, halting, all four legs planted, rebellious attitude, then physical compliance doesn't mean anything. He says in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is likened or is the same as iniquity or sin and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the eternal, he also has rejected you from being king. This is uh, Samuel speaking to Saul. So he says, your attitude's not right, Saul. You may be king, and you may be doing this and that, but if your attitude's right, and you're in a spirit of rebellion against God, what good does it do you? While I was reading that, it, Sodom and Gomorrah came to mind. I'm not going to turn there. But we need to understand what God's attitude is. He does not want to destroy mankind. Now, he put up with an awful lot of sin before Noah's flood, and he even allowed it to continue for a hundred years while he built the ark. Sometimes I think we get an attitude of wanting to see this destruction and get it over with, and that's not really the right attitude. We need to be praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, and peace and happiness and joy be instituted on the earth. In other words, we need to be involved in the solution uh, to the world's problems, not in overseeing its destruction. We should be preparing ourselves to be a wife of Christ so that we can oversee the coming together of the family and create in the peoples of the world the children of the marriage, the right kind of atmosphere, the right kind of living, the right kind of society. That's what a mother is for, is to help guide and lead the family in the way that the father directs. So we're not here to look to the destruction of the family. And he says, woe to them that look to the day of the Lord, or want the day of the Lord to come, They want to see this destruction. And I think it's easy for us to get into that attitude a little bit. Uh, God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for it. He's coming to save the world. But it's going to take an awful whipping before that will be accomplished. And at least 90% of the population of the earth will have to die. That's how stubborn and rebellious people are. And we who now have the Spirit of God find that we still have rebellion and contentiousness and whining and groaning and moaning and murmuring and, and all of those negative attitudes that we should not have. Are we really acting as the wife of God when we allow ourselves to go there and do those things? 
Now think back on Sodom and Gomorrah for a moment in that life. Lot didn't want to see it destroyed, and he kept saying, well, God, if I find this many people, you know, will you save it? Well, okay. If I find this many, will you save it? Well, okay. And God would have, was agreeing with that. He didn't want to destroy it unless he had to. But if he'd gotten so bad, he had to. Now, we are living in a society and a culture that is so bad that God is planning on destroying it. We should be in the attitude of Lot of, you know, I hate to see all these people die. I don't want to see all this destruction come. Is there any way it can be saved? Remember Jeremiah 50 or 51 it is, says, If we could save this nation, we would. We love it. We love what God gave us here. We love the people that are here. But it is so sick and so sinful that it has to be destroyed. And yet, when God finally said, Well, you're not going to find any. I'm going to have to destroy it. Anyway, you get out of here, take your family with you, and go a lot. And then what happened? The wife looked back. Now, there was some part of that society and that culture that she did not want to give up, that she looked back longingly for. Was she a homosexual or lesbian? I doubt it. She was married to Lot and had a family. But the men of the city were homosexual to the man. And God said, this has to be destroyed. It is a perversion that I just cannot abide any longer. But there was something about that culture. It wasn't the homosexuality, probably. There was something about it, though, that she longed for and did not want to give up. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, what about us? We're here to, be, to represent God's culture and society. We're here to set an example to the world of God's society. And yet we have so much trouble pulling ourselves away from the ways of this world, the entertainments of this world, the, world, the culture, if you will, of this world. We just don't want to give this up, or we don't want to give that up. Well, what is salt? What does salt do? Why did he turn her into salt? Why didn't he turn her into granite? Or, you know, some other thing. Why salt? What does salt do? It cleanses. It purifies. He wanted her cleansed and purified. He wanted her not looking back to the culture of this world and complaining about not giving it up and murmuring and griping about trying to live God's way instead of Sodom and Gomorrah's way. We need to understand that. Now, salt is what? An example to the world. You're to be the salt of the earth. Well, he turned her into salt. <laughs> he said, you're not supposed to be looking back to this world and its culture and its way of doing things, its way of child-rearing, its way of entertainment, its way of conducting marriages, its way of conducting finances. You're not supposed to be part of that. You're supposed to be doing it this way. You're not supposed to be in debt. You're supposed to be out of debt and be able to loan, not keep getting further into debt. Some of us have still got our credit cards, and we already have a whole bunch of money on them, and we keep putting it on there instead of going the other direction. 
we're not willing to give up the things that we want, and we'll go down and use that thing anyway, and we stay in debt paying high interest rates or trying to get them negotiated low or whatever. We're just not willing to give up the American way, living in debt. We're not willing to do a lot of things that God wants us to do. We still, you know, we say, well, let's be temperate in all things. Now, that's a perversion of that scripture to say that we can do evil things in moderation. Where does God say to sin in moderation? He doesn't. He says, no sin at all. Do not sin. Flee fornication, if you will. But we take things in our minds that are bad, not good, or evil, and we say, well, I should be tempered in that. No, we're not to be tempered in anything that's evil. Get rid of anything that's evil completely. The thing we're to be tempered in is, things, is in things that are allowed and that are good. Alcohol can be good. We should be temperate in our use of it. That is, unless we have a problem with it and have been intemperate and can't control it, then it is evil to us and we should not have it at all, ever. Let's understand that. Alcohol in and of itself is not evil unless it allows us to become evil or to use it in an evil form. Then we simply cannot have the liberty of using it. But those who can control it should use it in a temperate fashion. Food should be used in a temperate fashion. Food is good. There are foods or things that are put forth as food today that are poisons. And we should not be temperate in poison. Poison should go. It is not food. Should we be temperate in cyanide? Uh, temperate in strychnine? No, those things will kill you quickly. Should we be temperate then in slow poisons? You know, we, we can have a little slow poison. You know, do you want to die now of strychnine, or would you rather not die of diabetes, heart trouble, or cancer later? You know, pick your poison. So, we cannot twist something out of context and out of the rest of the scriptures to say, let's be temperate in things that aren't good in the first place. No, they shouldn't be the, you know, should you be temperate in pig eating? No, it's evil. It's not good. You don't, you're not temperate in pigs. You're temperate in how much beef you eat. You're temperate in how much chicken you eat. Uh, so if it's, if it's bad, if it's a poison of any kind, then we should be very, very careful with it. You know, I, I think sometimes, let's use for an example, sweets. Uh, the Bible says, use not much honey. Now, God speaks of a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey is a wonderful thing. It's one of the things that God uses to talk about prosperity and his blessing, is a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet the Proverbs say, use not much honey. So, we need to be very temperate in our use of sweets. But you see, in the church we tend to pervert that and we say, well, we shouldn't use white sugar because it's a poison. And that's true. So then we find a different kind of sugar that is more natural and we use just as much of it as we did the white sugar. 
or we switch to honey and eat just as much sweets as we did with the white sugar. No, we need to be temperate in the eating of sweets. We need to be abstinent in the way of poisonous things that are put forth as food. So you get rid of those things that are poisonous completely, and then you use temperance in those things that are okay. Honey is a wonderful thing, but it should not be imbibed of in great amounts. In other words, we should not have a lot of sweets. We should not have a lot of desserts. That is contrary to God's way, and it's contrary to Scripture. So if, if we just go part way and say, well, this is a good sweet, so I can have all the cake and pie and candy and stuff made with honey, uh, and then we eat a lot of sweets, God's saying that's not good for us. We need more vegetables and meat and whole grains and that kind of thing, and use sweetness as something that is occasional or not a great deal of. And sometimes we sweeten things to the point our, our taste buds are just simply polluted, and we like it just as sweet as you can get it. So, uh, just a, a word on that. God did not want Lot's wife to be temperate and evil. He did not want her to look back at, in evil uh, in any way. He wanted her to be completely divorced from evil. And so he turned her into a pillar of salt. You know what? Salt does, it purifies, it cleanses, uh, it preserves. Uh, so he said, I want you to be something that is worth preserving. I don't want you to be like that culture around you. I want you to be like salt to the world. You know, salt changes the flavor. And God wanted the flavor of Sodom and Gomorrah changed dramatically. So I don't think it's any, uh, there should be any mystery that he turned her into salt. Uh, which does change the flavor. Instead of turning it into clay or granite or something else, it wouldn't have the symbolic meaning that salt does. I've never really thought about that before, but I think there's some very good reasons he used salt there. So we have to change from the way things are in this world if we're to be the wife of Christ. It has to be a totally new culture, a different way. Uh, it can't be at all like the world. We can't cling to elements of this world. We have to come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and of her plagues. Otherwise, I cannot use you for salt to make the flavor right for the world. We're here to set the right flavor, not imbibe of the wrong flavors. Now, that's what he's looking for in a wife. He's looking for one that will change the culture of the world. Do we grasp that? I think we need to understand that analogy. We are here learning the right way to live so that the whole culture of the world can be changed from a godless, selfish human, satanic way to a godly way of love, of joy, of peace, of happiness, well-being, of patience, long-suffering, and all those things that a family should represent. See, that's why we go to the Feast of Tabernacles and we talk about the love, the peace of the millennium. The world goes to Christmas and Thanksgiving and they fight over each other's selfishness and sins and Christmas is the time of year where you have more homicides, more suicides, more family fights 
than any other time of the year, and especially Christmas Day itself. They're not preaching about love and joy and peace. They're fighting over past, or things that are still present, for that matter. Now, that isn't what God wants. So we're here to change the culture. We are here to change the culture. That's why God is removing his people out from the world physically at this point. Not just changing our minds and our approach, but he is going to bring a people out and he's going to set them aside and protect them in a specific area so that they do not have any influence from the world around them and they can live the culture of God. And the play acting in that sense of a husband and wife is expanded to the role of the church as wife and mother of Christ. And the two witnesses then have to be able to use that small remnant of people who have divorced themselves from the world as an example to the world of how a culture should be. We need to understand our calling, brethren. We need to have a vision of what we're here to do. We're not here to save our hides. We are coming out from the world to develop a culture that will be carried on into the millennium. That's what he wants of us. That will put us high on the list of those that he desires to have his wife eternally. We don't moan, complain, murmur, gripe about how long, about conditions, about, about that, and why he doesn't do this or that for us. You see, he doesn't want to see the world destroyed. And he, he does tell us, though, he says, don't give him any rest until he does these things he's promised to us that he will do. Now, that is not nagging. But you see, we have a problem. He despises the way this world is, just as he did before Noah's flood and just as he did at Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he utterly despises every aspect of the culture and society we live in. We don't, but he does. I hope we're learning to. But at the same time, he doesn't want to destroy the people unless he absolutely has to. And our problem is that we are candidates to be bride and wife, but we still retain many of the attitudes and approaches and the things of this world in our minds and emotions. So we're praying for deliverance, and he says, one point says, well, I will forgive your sins, and I will bless you, but he's got a problem in that we still look too much like the world. So how does he forgive us and use us as an example of the world when we still look a lot like it? Can you understand his hesitancy in causing all these blessings to come on us when we still look so much like the world to him? That's why he turned his face from the church. We were so much like the world he couldn't bear to look at us. So we are very much, very much, in the position of Lot's wife right now. We're still looking too much to the ways and the culture and the attitudes of this world. Now we have to quit looking back at the things that we're wanting not to give up and start having the attitude that is Christ-like that he would mate with, 
that he would want to be with. And then he can afford to say, all right, I'll forgive you and let's move forward. And now you can be an example to the rest of the world. He is in a quandary in, a, in that sense. When do, when do I go ahead and forgive these people and bless them? At what point have they quit whining and complaining and rebelling and wanting to go back to the world and dipping their toe back in it like Lot's wife did? When can I make them into the right kind of salt and the light to the world? He wants to point to you and me. There's, there's my wife-to-be. You do like she's doing. Now, are we really secure and comfortable in having him point to us and say that? I don't think so. We have a long way to go. Uh, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to remove our resistance to God's way and our acceptance of the world's way. And we come at this from a lot of different directions, but if we can grasp the vision of the kind of life he's looking for, then maybe it will help us divorce ourselves from our old boyfriend, the world, and Satan. Because we fight it, don't we? We fight it. And we complain about how hard it is to go God's way. He's not made it easy for us because he expects a great deal of change. He doesn't expect us to be as we are. Now, let's go to Psalm 113, verse 9. Psalm 113, verse 9. And here I am. Uh, he makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise you, the Eternal. So the, the, the church today is symbolized as a barren woman, a woman without children. Are we ready to have the children of Christ? Are we ready to rear the children of Christ? That's a good question. So he compares us right now to a barren woman who has no children. But he is going to turn her around to be a joyful mother of children. So there has to be a transformation in us so that we will no longer be barren, but we will be worthy to be the mother of the children of God. That's what he's looking for. And he will be able to change it and change us. But that change sometimes is difficult for us, isn't it? Because we do resist and we gripe and we grumble about how hard it is. Now, but look at the reward to be the mother of the children of God. Let's go to First Peter 3. I'll go through a few positive things here very quickly. We spent time on things he doesn't want. We spend a little time on the things he does. Of course, we did in Ephesians 5 to some degree. He's talking here, Peter is, in chapter 2 about we're like sheep gone astray and that we're not to be that way. And then he says that we're to return to the shepherd and bishop of our souls in the last verse of chapter 2. So he says then, in, in terms of that approach and attitude that he's talking about, likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. This isn't just Paul's idea. Peter says it too. 
be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conduct of the wives. In other words, when we come into the church, if our husband is not converted, we don't preach to him, we don't try to change his religion, we simply obey God and transform ourselves so that they might be won over by our conduct. Conversation is a very inadequate and very unfortunate translation there. It isn't our words, it's our conduct. It's the way we live that is to make an, a, a, an, to have an effect upon them. While they behold your chaste conduct or behavior coupled with fear, so here we have fear again entering it. We are to walk in fear of God. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing gold or putting on of apparel. Now, does that mean we should pull all our hair out and not wear clothes? No, it is not the emphasis. Now, what is the emphasis in our society today? It's the outward appearance. We need to get away from that. Instead of spending so much time and energy on appearance and how we physically look. Do our girls and women still do too much of that? Yes, they do. We have not gotten that out of our society. We still are too concerned about our physical looks. Now, should we take care of our bodies? Yes, we should. Should we dress decently and um, in a proper manner, a modest manner? Yes, we should. There are instructions about that. But he said, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of how we do our hair and the jewelry we wear and the clothes we put on to make ourselves look so wonderful. Let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Now I ask you, do the women in our culture in America today spend more time on seeking a meek and quiet spirit or on how they look? Matter of fact, in our so-called liberated society, uh, women are trying to get away from the meek and quiet spirit and take the lead, be the loud mouth, be the talker. Uh, no, a meek and quiet spirit. That doesn't mean you can't talk. It's talking about the attitude, the spirit, the approach, the mindset is to be meek. But our women today in this society tend to be brash, prideful, harsh, opinionated, not meek, and not quiet in spirit. And we promote it. It's promoted on TV all the time. Uh, you know, pushy, uh, forward uh, attitudes in women. And it's just the opposite of what God wants. But those are the idols of our society. They're the ones we look up to on television and radio, movies, whatever. No. We need to de-emphasize the way we physically look. Dress nicely, dress modestly, but de-emphasize it. Don't spend a lot of time on it. We need to spend a lot more time on developing a meek and quiet spirit and being able to live lovingly and peaceably and happily without contention and strife 
and getting our own way. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God ordained them, uh, adorned themselves being in subjection to their own husbands, a meek and quiet spirit and subjection to their husbands in every way, just as we should be subject to Christ in every way. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well, and can accept this concept, or not blown away by it, or can understand what he's saying here. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, not according to having a stronger bicep, or a bigger ego. Giving honor to the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. If we act macho, and try to lord it over them, and become overbearing, and don't let them think or talk at all, then we hinder their spiritual growth. Sorry, guys, we do. And we need to be very careful giving honor to them and understand their insecurities and their feelings and understand the, the role God has put them in. They're commanded to almost revere us. They're commanded to obey us in everything. And it is spiritual abuse to then use that role that God put them in against them and to be overbearing to them. They're in a weak position, and we cannot take advantage of them in that. But we have to be, as he says here, heirs together. One is not better than the other. We are heirs together. One is in charge, but not better than, and not superior to. There are some husbands and wives in the church where the wife will be a part of the bride of Christ and the husband will not. That's just a fact. But just because you're a man doesn't mean you have a spiritual advantage. Finally, be all of you of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be full of pity, be courteous, and don't render evil for evil and all that kind of thing. But he uses marriage as the basis for establishing that kind of attitude. First Timothy 3.11. Let's see, what time is it? I've got just a few minutes here. First Timothy 3.11. Even so, must their wives... Now, this is speaking of the qualifications of an elder or in the ministry, a bishop, and so on. And it mentions the wives. Even so, must their wives be serious, not slanderers, gossips, but to be sober and faithful in all things. So the wife of an elder or minister has some instruction here to be very, very careful. They have to keep their mouths shut to be serious and not gossips and sober, serious about these things, and faithful in all things. So when you consider whether you might ordain a man as an elder or not, you better consider also his wife and whether she's a busybody and a gossip or not. It's a very important thing in that consideration. Let's go to Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12. Everything in here is not about ripping prophets. <laughs> which we 
all can be at times, man or woman. Proverbs 12 and verse 4. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. Something that he wears on his head, something that sets apart. But she that makes ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. So a woman who lives like a queen, acts like a, I don't mean like a princess, excuse me, and is selfish and self-centered and wants everything done her way and to be the center of attention. A virtuous woman, a, a true queen, gives honor and glory to her husband, the king. And we are to be the queen of the universe and give honor and glory to our husband, the king of the universe, and be a crown to our husband-to-be and not make rottenness in his bones. To be, you know, how, how can Christ present us to the world as his wife, the queen of the world, if you will, and have us like we are? <laughs> that just doesn't work. How can he take this selfish, self-centered, obsessed with physical beauty, bunch of people, and make them the queen of the universe? You can't do that. We have to make changes. We have to be a crown that he can point to and say, World, I want you to be like my wife, like my queen. You be like she is. Now, he has to somehow get us to the position that he can say that of us to the rest of the world before he can put us in that position. He can't be ashamed of us. Now, I realize that us achieving this in this physical life is a very, very difficult thing. And we're not going to perfectly accomplish it. That's why there is a change from the physical to the glorious at the first resurrection. But we need to get us close to that as we can because even before that resurrection he wants to use a remnant of the church that is the virtuous daughter, the most virtuous the fairest of them all as an example to the rest of the world before the first resurrection even comes. So we have to make a certain amount of progress for him to be able to do that as a preliminary to the millennium. The two witnesses have to have something to point to in a positive way, and say to the world, you're not supposed to be like this, you're supposed to be like that. Are you ready to have Christ of the two witnesses point to you and say, world, be like these? Are we ready for that? Let's understand that's part of our preparation. Not to be a pillar of salt like Lot's wife was, but Lot should have been able to take her out of there and she go and not look back and not pine for the world and the things of the world and the beauty of the world and everything else that may have gone into that, but to separate herself completely from it so that she could, in truth, be a light to and the salt of the earth, as he tells us in Matthew 5, we ought to be. Well, I'm out of time. I, I wanted to go to one more place. It would take time, so I won't do that. I might do it next time I speak or go on to uh, another aspect of this. But uh, So let's stop there for today. Sorry about the uh, technical problems we had at the beginning, but sometimes those things happen. So that's all for today.